Well, our text today, the Hebrew text before us, opens with the word journeyed. Journeyed. Journeyed from there, Abraham. And we have to kind of run through our brain. Well, we were just talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Where was journey? Where was Abraham? Where was he journeying from? And this word for, for journey um, is, is the word we find it all often when the people of God journey from one place to the next in the wilderness. And it's related to the word for pulling up your tent pegs, breaking camp, as it were. And this opening verse is something of a, a title statement, a thesis statement for this whole story, this whole episode. The last two words of this opening verse, uh, we read that Abraham sojourned in Gerar. And the word for sojourn and the word Gerar uh, sound very similar. Moses is using a word play. It's like he's saying he sojourned in the sojourning place. In verse 13, when Abraham's talking uh, to Abimelech and frankly kind of stuttering and, and trying to make an excuse for himself, he says, when God caused me to wander from my father's house, we decided, uh, Sarah and I, that we would behave in such a manner. He describes his behavior to Abimelech as based on his status as a wanderer, which has been thrust upon him by God's call of faith. We read in Hebrews that Abraham didn't know where he was going. And this word wanderer is, again, it's a word that could be similar to, to sort of stumbling, being drunk or intoxicated. We know Abraham in this series uh, through Genesis has been looking at Abraham as the father of all believers, the, the prototypical believer. But we should also remember that he is the, the father of all sojourners. He's the prototypical alien. He's a pilgrim. And I think the important thing for us today to realize and to draw comfort from, dear Christians, is that these things go together. Faith and pilgrimage. Faith and exile. They're not really two different things. They're two sides of one coin. And allow me to read again some of those words from Hebrews 11, which interprets and translates the story of Abraham for us. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive. He never receives that place. The, the closing stories in the next few chapters, he'll have to buy a plot of land to bury his wife and to bury himself and his family. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, but not yet as his own land, as a foreign land. This is expressed and uh, typified by the existence of living in tents. I don't know if you're a camper. My wife and I, our family, we've started camping a little bit more lately. It's fun, like for a few days. <laughs> and uh, one of our first camping trips out to Shenandoah, we had one night, but we wanted to stay two. So the next night, we went up to the ranger's office and we got another campsite. And like, it's not really fun when you're camping for two nights and you make a camp one place, and then you wake up the next day and you have to pull up your tent, move, put up the tent again. And then cook dinner and then get to bed and all that. It's not fun living in tents, really. Some people have, you know, perfected it. Hebrews tells us that he lived like this. We don't get this in Genesis. But Hebrews tells us that he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He acknowledges that he's a stranger and an exile on earth. As it is, he desired a better country that is a heavenly one. 
Therefore, God's not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I don't think we often reckon with the fact that when we're called to faith in Christ, we are called to a desire and a longing for a heavenly city. This is the great error of of what's known popularly as, as the prosperity gospel, right? It says that we have heaven now. And that's not the gospel. That's not what Jesus promises us. Jesus says, the world hated me, and because you are my followers, the world will hate you as well. Think how this story of Abraham, the alien, the exile, the sojourner, would have sounded to Moses' original audience. They had been foreigners in a strange land for hundreds of years. They'd been slaves. Then the Lord had brought them out by a mighty exodus, and He'd promised them, I'm going to give you a land, and all, all the cisterns, they've already been dug, all the fields are already planted, they have fences. It's perfect. It's perfect for you. And they go in, and they don't believe, and they're frightened, and they don't trust God, and so they're ejected from the land before they even enter it. They just send a few spies, and God sentences them to 40 years of pilgrimage, wandering, stumbling about in the wilderness like drunken people. So when Moses writes this story, he says, Abraham lived in that land, but don't worry. Abraham's been a wanderer too. This land was promised to him, it will be fulfilled to you, but don't worry. God's with you. Gerar is located to the south, towards the wilderness. Abraham could have been on his way to Egypt. Later on, Abimelech will say to Isaac, Don't go to Egypt during the famine. Come here. I'll feed you. I fed your father. And these two episodes, this this calls to mind. In fact, Abraham reflects back on chapter 12. I do this all the time with my wife. Weird. But he reflects back on chapter 12. and, And so these two episodes bookend Abraham's existence from the call and the promise to the fulfillment of the promise. God's promise comes to foreigners, exiles, aliens. Abraham is an alien. Let's not pass over this lightly. Genesis doesn't. Hebrews doesn't. The Bible doesn't. And all believers are aliens. Paul says that our faith is founded in hope. And hope is not sight. You don't hope for what you see. You don't hope for breakfast while you're eating breakfast. You hope for lunch or dinner. For in this hope we were saved, Paul writes in Romans 8. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it in patience. Why? Why did Abraham keep wandering? He could have just camped in one place, right? He could have been a foreigner, but not moved so much. Well, think about it. Abraham and Sarah had just been eyewitnesses to the destruction of Sodom. They had perhaps been singed by the fire from heaven. Who knows what sorts of odors and scents of destruction held around their last encampment, the Oaks of Mamre. They had also learned that that neighborhood was full of some pretty unsavory characters. Remember, Abraham had pleaded for Sodom. God, if there's just a few righteous people there, and he's thinking of this nephew Lot, if there's just a few righteous people, you won't judge an innocent place, will you? And he gets God down to just a handful. But there isn't even a handful. Abraham had reason to be afraid. Maybe they want to raise their child in a better neighborhood. And but he goes from the, the frying pan to the fire. And Abraham tells us that he thought the people of Gerar would kill him because of his wife. Abraham doesn't live 
an easy life. We go quickly to, to the moral of the story. Oh, Abraham should have had more faith. You know, this, this teaches us the lesson that Abraham's faith was weak. Well, how's our faith doing, brothers and sisters? We live in a pretty tough time and place. Some of us in this city live in places of high crime. I remember one of our deacons talking about how often gunshots were heard in his neighborhood. That's scary stuff. We know what it's like to be afraid. Claire and I were driving down the street yesterday, and we saw a line of over 100 people lined up getting food from the back of a truck. It's called food insecurity. And there's a vast percentage of people in America, the wealthiest nation ever on the face of planet Earth, who don't know where their food's coming from in a day or a week or two. They're afraid. I don't know if you've ever been an immigrant or an alien. I won't, I've told some of my own stories before, and it's not like I was roughing it, right? I was like a student abroad. But I did get excommunicated. I got cast out of that country. I went to Geneva and tried to pretend like I knew how to speak French. That was very awkward and painful. So you get lying when you enter into a program that's going to be in French. You can't really speak French. It's kind of embarrassing. But it's hard to be in a place where you don't speak the language. Many of you perhaps know this firsthand. It's frightening. So let's empathize a bit with Abraham. He had a really hard life, 25 years during this season. Abraham's sin is still great, don't get me wrong. But Abraham is afraid. And we know that fear drives people to do horrible things, really horrible things. Fear drives us to foolishness. Fear drives us to sin. Moses would have felt this fear. The Israelites would have empathized with this fear. And we should too. We are called with Abraham out of our homeland. We are called out of putting our hope in this fallen, broken world. To putting our hope in something we can't see. And that's hard. It's not easy. If someone tells you the Christian life is easy, they're lying. It requires faith. It requires faith in a God who's bigger than our fears. Faith in a God, as this story tells us, who is in control. Faith in God who can heal and give life. Who keeps His promises. And so this story highlights not only that Abraham was a sojourner in Gerar, the land of sojourning, but it also highlights that he's a sinner. He's an alien and he's an illegal alien. The father of the faithful, the father of all believers, the paragon of faith, is not a moral paragon. Some people preach the Old Testament or preach the Bible like it's a, a series of hero stories. You should emulate these people. Most of the Bible, most of the people in the Bible you shouldn't emulate. And even Jesus, you really can't emulate because he walked on water, did miracles, and spoke the word of God in all these things, right? We are called to put our trust in God like Abraham did. Even when we falter, even when we wander, when we stumble. We see Abraham's sin in this passage even more by way of contrast with the righteousness, the integrity, and the purity of Abimelech. Let's be clear. No matter the justification, Abraham abandoning his wife passing her off as his sister, inviting her adultery, and the adultery of Abimelech is a great sin. 
There is also not an insignificant matter that when Abraham seeks to justify his sin, well, I didn't really lie. In point of fact, she's my sister. Just has a different mother. He's confessing a greater sin. According to the law of Moses, which, yes, granted, hadn't yet been revealed. But a couple weeks ago, we read the law from Deuteronomy 27. Perhaps you remember, Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. It's almost like Moses knows what he wrote in Genesis. And the people shall say, Amen. You're not supposed to marry your sister. Abraham violates the holy law revealed at Sinai. A lot of Christians, a lot of preachers have been a little uncomfortable with this and said, well, maybe he's not, maybe he, she's speaking metaphorically, the, 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 he's talking about his grandfather, maybe she's a distant cousin. Our good friend John Calvin liked that explanation. But I like the sort of front and center exp- explanation. Abraham was breaking God's law. We shouldn't follow this example. This is a grave sexual sin, which God nevertheless protected her through. One last word about Abraham's sinfulness as an illegal alien before we turn to Abimelech in our second point. Perhaps you've heard it said, and this is sort of more of a general comment, I know I have, that the Bible is really more concerned with the poor, with how we treat the oppressed, the orphan, the widow. It's more concerned with, with property, sins of finance than it is with sins of sexuality. Americans these days, American Christians are are puritanical. We're obsessed with homosexuality. We are obsessed with adultery. Sexuality is a modern hang-up, an American obsession. It's not the biblical focus. The prophets sometimes speak this way. They speak of, of Israel's great sin with those who are needy. But I think this passage should remind us, and this whole episode of, of, of Abraham really should remind us, I don't agree. I think the Bible is pretty much equally concerned with the sin of adultery, <laughs> the seventh commandment, and the sin of theft, the eighth commandment. My key argument really for this is the centrality of marriage in the scriptures. The Bible starts with humanity, male and female, married and a command that they be fruitful and multiply. This sort of implies human sexuality. And it ends with the marriage supper of the Lamb. The church, we are called a bride, a pure and spotless bride of Christ. We're made pure by the blood of the Lamb. And note the importance through the whole story of our redemption, the importance of a promised seed, a child who will be born to crush the head of the serpent. And... Abraham seeks this seed outside of marriage. It's a great sin, a great folly, outside of God's promise. He seeks it according to the flesh in Hagar, his wife's sermon. Sodom is presented here as a great perversion of marriage and human sexuality. Not only the abuse of male and female sexual relations, but the inversion of the sex act, which Paul will refer to in Romans chapter 1. And God rains down fire upon it. And Lot's own daughters are casting about. Why? Because they want a seed. They want an inheritance. They don't want to be foreigners and strangers. They want a line. They want a heritage. And they want it on their own terms. And they're willing to seek to raise up children from their own father. So we have sexual sin after sexual sin in the story of Abraham. 
And here Abraham once again reverts to an abuse of his marriage. In chapter 18, God said, I'll be back in a year. Sarah's going to have a baby. And in that year, he gives his wife up to other men. So marriage and chastity within the state of marriage is a central concern of God's holiness of his law. And this episode shows us, and, and this is by way of transition to our second point, that even natural man, even unbelievers, know this truth. Especially when we see, uh, you know, we see in Abimelech that Abraham did something wrong. You did what should not have been done. You brought a great sin upon our people. Even unbelievers have practiced marriage. It is a part of God's natural revelation. And so I want to speak a word about that. Second point here is Abimelech is a God-fearing king. Abraham's weakness, his sinfulness, is emphasized in this episode by the contrast with Abimelech. And likewise, Abimelech's integrity is made all the more brilliant by way of contrast with Sodom and Gomorrah. Not only is Abimelech more holy than God's own prophet, but Abimelech is more holy than the other nations. And it is surprising to us. Abraham had just pleaded with God to save the entire city of wicked Sodom if if, uh, just a few righteous individuals could be found. And here, Abimelech uses the same plea. God, will you judge an innocent man such as myself? He claims to be righteous, pure, to be whole, to have integrity. And he calls himself a nation. I'm a holy, innocent nation. He's speaking like the royal we. Put simply, Abimelech highlights, the figure of Abimelech, this story, highlights God's common grace. God's favor, even towards unbelievers. And reminds us that even in a fallen world, sinful man still has God's law written on his heart. Brothers and sisters, it's too easy for us to fall into the modern trap of us and them. We're Christians. We're the children of light. Sons and daughters of the great king. The world hates us. Let's therefore go to war with them. No. The image of God dwells in every man, woman, and child. And they're worthy of our respect and love and care. It's important that we make a key distinction between common grace, favor from God, that everyone, believers, unbelievers alike, receive in common. We all share it. A good example is rain. When God sends rain, the Bible clearly sees it as a blessing. It causes the fields to grow and crops. It feeds us. And the Bible tells us that rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. It's a classic example of God's common grace. Rain doesn't save you from sin and death. It's not saving grace, but it is God's favor. And he wants even sinners to be well fed. But saving grace is that which leads to faith and life, new creation, the Holy Spirit. By saying that Abimelech received God's grace and favor, we aren't saying that he was saved. And I don't believe he's presented as a believer, maybe a God-fearer. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let's count a few ways that this text really highlights Abimelech as a recipient of God's favor. There are at least three really explicit things in this story. First, God appears to him in a dream. This usually happens to saints in the Bible. He receives divine revelation. Now, this is uncommon. This is extraordinary, I would say. Not every unbeliever uh, has dreams where God tells him what he's going to do. But we do read in the book of Romans that God's law is written on everyone's hearts. Every man, woman, and child has received God's revelation. His general revelation 
of his holiness. It's common to all of us. That's why we all struggle with sin. With guilt for our sins, I mean. We know we are sinners. And we spend our whole lives trying to cover up that fact and alleviate our guilt. Abimelech receives a warning. This is a legal revelation. This isn't saving. He says, you're a dead man. If you want to stop sinning, return. The word here for return the wife to Abraham is, is the, word for, the same word for, for turn, repent. Many warnings. Second, God kept Abimelech from sin. Though he says he was innocent, God reminds him, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. I did not let you touch her. This is interesting. When unbelievers emphasize their own righteousness, it's not their own. If there's any holiness, if there's any obedience, if there's any upright moral nature in man, it is from God. And there is much holiness in man. Not perfect holiness, not saving holiness. But because God's law is written on their hearts, many obey its dictates. Many avoid stealing things, avoid killing, avoid murder. This doesn't mean that depravity is not total. As the Lord saw in Genesis 6 before the flood, as we just saw in Sodom, the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Obviously, God doesn't keep all unbelievers from sin. Sodom fell and exacerbated this sin and was destroyed. But God works even in the lives of unbelievers. He keeps Abimelech from sin. And we'll come back to that point later. It's kind of interesting how he did so, if he didn't pick it up. Third, the fear of God is in this place. Abraham acted like he did because he assumed that these Unbelievers would be just like his old neighbors in Sodom. And he had good reason, right? This place is going to tear me apart. Abraham assumed there was no fear of God in this place. But the men are very much afraid when Abimelech relates his dream. They are the prototypical God-fearers in the Bible. They fear God. They don't know who He is. They don't know His promises. But they know that they've broken His law and they're scared. People who are in touch with God's law written on their hearts often live lives of integrity. They have a fear of death. They just don't have the solution. They know the problem. Moses relates all this with a healthy dose of irony. He's playing with us. He's he's trying to help us see what it's like to be foreigners and strangers and God's goodness and promises. Any integrity that Abimelech has is due to God's kindness to him. God preserved him from sin. So it's kind of ironic that Abimelech plays this this holiness card, right? And even righteous, holy, pure Abimelech has to pray to a sinful prophet to be healed. Abimelech needs a mediator. The righteous king needs the Lord's prophet to play the priest. To pray to God so that God will heal him. Moral righteousness is not salvation. Your works cannot save you. You need a mediator. Abraham, again, is shown to be a type, not only of the perfect believer and follower of God, but a type of Christ, as he was in preserving the life of Lot through Sodom. And here's another irony. Coming back to this idea, how did God keep Abimelech from sinning with Sarah after he took her from another man? Abimelech admits, I intended to lie with Sarah. He took her for this purpose. 
What we learn is the punchline of the story that Abimelech and his wife and female slaves all had to be healed of the Lord in order for them to bear children. The irony is that Abimelech remained pure vis-a-vis Sarah because he was struck impotent. He couldn't have done anything if he wanted to. It's not in his strength, but in his weakness, in his suffering, that he gets closest to the truth and holiness of God's law. So it is only by making this king impotent and powerless that he accidentally became full of holiness and integrity for a moment. He really doesn't deserve any credit at all, though he's certainly proud of this impotence when God threatens to strike him dead. His pride turns to arrogance. His self-righteousness is unjustified. And so even though Moses, in telling this story, God and bringing this story to us, is playing with surprises and contrasts in the world, what it's like to be a believer in the world, he's reminding us here, right, that Abimelech has no power in himself, no holiness. And this really brings us to our concluding point, the third and final point. It is God who heals. It is God who heals through his prophet Abraham, in spite of Abraham's sin, in spite of Abimelech's sin. Notice how Moses relates this story. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. The Lord visited Sarah, as he had said. God opened the wombs of Abimelech's harem as a result of Abraham's prayers. But he had closed all the wombs of Abimelech's house for the sake of Sarah and his promises to Sarah. God protected Sarah when she was most vulnerable to the world's wickedness. He protected Sarah before Abraham prayed for her, when Abraham was not protecting her, when he was endangering her. And again, God uses Abraham's fear of man, his sin, to work in spite of Abraham's sinning to bring out something good. Sarah is vindicated in the eyes of the world. She's given a a princely virginal bride price, even though she's 80 years old or so, on her departure from Abimelech's house. This demonstrates her innocence to all who behold her. And the people of God, again, follow this pattern of being enriched from the nations among whom they live as they were previously in Egypt and as they would be in the exodus from Egypt again. And then notice again what follows immediately in this text, and we'll look to it more fully next week, but there are no chapter break. It goes right from God remembering Sarah, protecting Sarah, to the Lord visiting Sarah, as he had said, as promised, and the Lord did to Sarah, as he had promised. It's emphasized here. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age, the time right when God had told him. He would three times in those verses. God did what he said he would do when he said he would do it. When Abraham prayed for his enemy, God blessed him. Do you see the irony? No doubt Abraham had prayed and pleaded for Sarah's womb to be open for 25 years or more. If Abraham's prayers availed so much, Why was the holy man of God unable to get what he wanted when he wanted it? Why did he and Sarah live for so long under the curse of barrenness? It's interesting in chapter 22, the next chapter after this next one. Abraham 
will offer up this newborn son to God as a sacrifice. And the angel will stop him and say, Do not lay your hand on the boy, for now I know that you fear God. Now Abraham fears God as much as Abimelech. He's learned to let go of what God has given him, even in this world. Brothers and sisters, as fellow aliens and sojourners and strangers, we all live as though under a curse in a foreign land. Just as there is something called common grace, there is something called common curse. Believers die too. Believers get sick too. The curse of sin and death is on our whole age. We live under this common curse even as the world reaps the benefits of God's common grace. What a confusing time. What a bewildering, wandering existence our lives are. And if we think we have it all, if we think we're all buttoned down and this world is safe and secure and, you know, my 401k is big enough, I have a plan. Disaster can always strike. There is no security. The city that has foundations is the heavenly city. There is no other comfort in life and death. We stumble as drunks through this veil of tears. But God's promise is a source of confidence. When Paul is talking about hope in Romans 8, he says that the creation has been subjected to suffering for the sake of hope, for hope, in hope. We are subjected to suffering in this age. We suffer with our Savior Christ Jesus that we might have greater hope, greater faith and confidence in God's promises. That we might long... Not for the job, or the spouse, or the career, or the college, or the credentials. We might long for our heavenly rest. To stop camping in tents. To be home. At the moment of peak alienation, and the moment when the sojourning is most severe, exactly when Abraham and Sarah are exiled and foreign to the extreme, garars and garar, that's when God blesses. When we are weak, he is strong. God sends laughter, just as he says he will. He fulfills his promise. Sarah finally gets the joke. God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. An old woman had a baby. It's not my doing. It was God. God will bless us in our weakness as we place our faith in Christ, the true prophet, priest, and king, who is holy and pure, and whose prayers will heal us. Let us pray. Merciful God, you are so sweet to your children, and we do not deserve it. You are so patient and so long-suffering. Your loving kindness is pledged and bound and certain and sure and sealed with the blood of your own Son. Bless us in the supper as we are unified to Christ, our Savior, as we are conformed to his image through sufferings like his, and keep our eyes, dear Lord, through the power of your spirit, fixed on that heavenly city with foundations. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.